Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Double Jeopardy, the law and politics podcast with me, Ken MacDonald. I'm a barrister at Matrix Chambers and a former director of public prosecutions. And with me, Tim Owen. I'm also a barrister at Matrix Chambers, specialising in crime, public law and human rights law. And our guest uh, for this week's episode is Richard Moorhead. Richard is the Professor of Law and Ethics at the University of Exeter and Honorary Professor of Law at University College London, where he held the inaugural Chair in Law and Professional Ethics between 2012 and 2016. He's a former solicitor who spent his career researching the conduct of lawyers and legal services, and he's conducted research for the Legal Services Board, the Solicitors Regulatory Authority, the Law Society, the Inns of Court College of Advocacy, the Civil Justice Council, the Ministry of Justice, and I'm sure many other public bodies. Richard's current work focuses on lawyers, their ethics, regulation, and professional competence. He's a prolific legal blogger, publishing his articles under the title lawyerwatch.wordpress.com, and he's regularly quoted in the legal and national media, in particular since the uh, Ukraine-Russia war, where the ethics and conduct of lawyers has been called into question in all sorts of areas. Recent topics covered by his blogs include the role of lawyers in the post office horizon scandal, which led to the wrongful convictions of hundreds of post office staff, the question of how retired judges who return to legal practice should be regulated, if at all, the role of lawyers in slap suits, i.e. strategic litigation against public participation, and he's also questioned the continuing validity of the bar's cab rank rule, about which I think it's fair to say Richard is not a big fan. Richard, welcome to Double Jeopardy. Thanks for joining us, Richard. Thank you very much for having me. Richard, um, with I've given a, a bit of an intro, but um, t- tell us how you got into law. What, what was it that uh, made you a lawyer in the first place? Was it the first thing you chose to do? Yeah, uh, so I'm of the era of Petrocelli and Crown Court. Yes. If you remember Petrocelli and Crown Court. Um, uh, Crown, you'd be amazed how many guests mention Crown Court, Richard. The uh, many, many days off school, I would watch Crown Court <laughs> yeah, if yeah. I was off school. Uh, the, um, um, I, I sort of slipped into it because at, at the end of my sixth form, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I had a mixture of arts and sciences as A-levels, and I thought, well, I'll go to do a law degree. And that's got a career at the end of it if I choose to go in that direction. And I was sort of interested in politics and justice a bit at that age. So all of those reasons, really. But I certainly didn't. I didn't don't have lawyers in the family, didn't set off to be a lawyer. Just and you went and you became a solicitor, first of all. Is that right? You practiced, you went into private practice before you became an academic. I did for a little while. I was um, I did business crime uh, at a firm called Owen Mitchell up in Sheffield. Oh, yeah. So I know Ken will know. They used to instruct Ken. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, so I did, but I didn't do it for very long. I qualified. I did a year or so of that, uh, and uh, I'd been bitten by the bug of researching and writing already. So I went back to doing that. Basically, they had a very, they had a very effective, well, still do I think, business crime department. Kevin Robinson was there, and um, one of the cases I did for them actually was the Matrix Churchill case, the great um, Supergun case. Yeah, Supergun case. Yeah, with uh, Jeffrey Robinson, which was a great victory about oh god 20 22 years ago yeah absolutely so I, was just I think i think it's longer than that Ken. it is yeah oh god yeah well time time flies as you get older tim yeah. as you well know <laughs> <laughs> so okay so richard um so uh, you you spent time at owen mitchell and then uh, obviously at some point you decided uh, that it wasn't for you private practice wasn't for you and then you go to where was UCL your first academic post? No, I did various posts. I was at Birmingham and Liverpool. I was at Cardiff for a very long time. And I was at UCL sort of between 2012 and 2019 before I moved to Exeter in 2019. So that's my sort of my journey, if you like. They've always, they've always had a good good law school at Cardiff, haven't they? It's always been a strong law school. Yes, yeah, what, what, what academics call socio-legal. So very much inter- interested in the interface yeah. between law and politics if you like yeah exactly exactly yeah Let, let's come on to what what, what is the really the center of what we want to talk to you about and and the subject about which you obviously you're most well known and have written um 
very prolifically over the last year or so, maybe well longer than that, but I think particularly in the last year or so, um, your blogs and comments have been quoted uh, and brought to a very wide audience, and that is professional ethics. I mean, um, the subject of ethics uh, has not traditionally been seen as a subject of law. It's, it's a sort of an aspect of once you become a lawyer, then you you know you are regulated, and then ethics are a part of the way in which you are regulated. So, so just tell us a bit about how. I mean, back in twenty twelve, you were you were chair of, of eth- professional ethics at UCL. Yes. So um, the uh, it's always been there's been bits there've been bits here and there. So actually, a predecessor of mine, Exeter, Kim Economides, used to do it at Exeter quite a lot. But it's all, compared to other countries, it's always been a much more minor part of academic study australia canada the states it's very different partly because the law schools are a bit more integrated with the professions there than they are in uk law schools in general um so that's that's the reason why i think it's a bit more of a minority sport i think in this country or has been it's growing in significance i think a bit um again but um uh, yeah, I, I got into it because I did lots of I did research work on lawyers. That's what I did. I went to Warwick as an undergrad, did a clinical law course. Absolutely loved it. Loved the idea of the clinical course. Loved the idea of. Sorry, what's clinical? When you say clinical law, what do you mean? So like like a pro bono clinic, really. Uh, but you're 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 taught to reflect on, think about what being a good lawyer means as part of that process. So it's partly to provide services to clients. Uh, and partly to learn about being a lawyer. And it's the last bit that really brought law, the study of law to life for me. It's a very good idea, isn't it? They, they, they have, they, famously, they had one at the University of Kent for a long time. I don't know whether they still do the Kent Law Clinic. Yeah, they do. And I mean, blend, blending legal education with legal practice is a, is a very good idea. Yeah, it's, and clinics are, almost all law schools, if not all of them, have clinics now. But back back then, it was less common. Kent, Kent and Warwick were amongst the forerunners yeah. back in the 60s um the uh but um it was it really got me interested in um, i'm going to use a phrase that's going to rile every lawyer listening to you the science of lawyering it got me interested in that <laughs> What's, what is it what does it mean to be a good lawyer mm. and i was more interested in competence then than i was about ethics ethics is something that came later um but that's how i got into it uh, but can i just uh, in terms of, of again going back to to it as a discrete area of law i mean you know uh, yeah. uh, when i studied law god knows how long ago doing an option in ethics was not a subject. You did land law, tort, contract, you know, equity, criminal law, all of that. And I suppose just being a sort of uh, pushing back at it, I mean, how long does it take to study the ethics of being a lawyer? Is it not a question of reading the Barstanders Code of Conduct or the SRA Code of Conduct? You know, I mean, what is the, the legal sort of database so well i mean so uh, the, the way i teach it is um i uh, the, the students become familiar with the codes and they become familiar with case studies of areas where lawyers have, if you like gone wrong and that's that's what i've been doing on the blog for years is writing about those kinds of case studies and thinking about how to apply the rules in those situations and what the pressures are on lawyers in practice so you know financial pressures and cultural pressures on lawyers to behave a certain way so it's that that i i concentrate on um how long does it take well i, I guess the answer is probably not long enough so um you mentioned the research i did for the ends of court college of advocacy we did an evaluation of what we call the ethical capacities of new advocates and we got the people who trained barristers in ethics um, for the, for the college uh, to do the assessments and about 40 percent of the advocates who were within three years of course so sort of one to three years of call about 40 percent of them were performing inadequately so that gives you a sense of actually how far off young practitioners, if you like, were when we did that research. So I think there's quite a lot of work to do, actually, educating young lawyers about ethics. I mean, there, there's some interesting cultural differences here, I think. I mean, for example, in the United States, there's a, a long and ignoble tradition of bent lawyering. And I think legal ethics, in consequence, have been a bit further up the the, the menu there. And I think maybe perhaps in in England and Wales, probably Scotland too, we've been 
a bit complacent about this. I mean, lawyering has always been seen as a as a very respectable kind of traditionally it was seen as a respectable middle class profession. You think of the kind of high street lawyer who'd look after everything from your property sale to your will and all the rest of it. And and, and there was a sort of sense that lawyers were to be trusted and were trustworthy. And maybe that led to a bit of complacency about the the ethical side of the profession. I don't know. Yeah, so it was Watergate that was supposed to be the kind of watershed for American lawyers. And we haven't really had our Watergate. Maybe we're going to have it with the post office scandal. I don't know. But the uh, uh, I think there there has been a bit of complacency and professions generally being quite shielded from scrutiny until maybe the last decade or so. And, self, and yeah. self-regulating, of course, which was a, a big thing, wasn't it? Exactly. And we've been moving away that in, in, from that in everything. I mean, from policing to lawyering to... Well, not so much medicine, but do you know what I mean? There's a sort of, as you say, there's 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 a, there's a shift away from self-regulation, as there there clearly should be. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree. Just going back to what you said earlier on about you, I think you said was it forty percent, according to this survey, forty percent of young lawyers were performing inadequately. Yeah. How how on earth do you measure that? Ah, right. So what we did was we worked with the college in the court, uh, court College of Advocacy. We developed basically a set of problems based on the training that they got, uh, which we thought were kind of, if you like, the appropriate level for new advocates. And we asked the new advocates how they would resolve those problems. So it was a bit like an oral viva in a way. Talk us through how you would deal with this. And we transcribed them. And we gave them to the trainers to say, well, what do you think of these? Mark them against these criteria. And we developed the criteria with the trainers. So it's a very collaborative process. And they provided the marks. So that's how we did it. But 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 is that marking, I mean, that's, I assume that's not marking their competence as to whether they get the law right. That's, that's some scheme which measures their professional ethical propriety. How do, how do you do that? Yeah. It, we call it ethical capacities because you kind of it's a, it's a it's a simulation, right? So you're not actually measuring them whilst they're doing the job. You're asking them how would you deal with this problem? So are you capable of dealing with this project problem? And um, the the um, the markers were looking at who again they were senior practicing um, barristers um, in the main, nearly all barristers if I remember rightly, um, and they were looking at. Are they dealing with the critical issues? Are they applying the right rules? Are they applying the rules to the facts in a way which is um, appropriate? So they, they were really looking at, um, at their understanding of the conduct rules and their application of the rules to the facts. So the classic legal reasoning stuff, if you like, but in the context of ethical problems. So that's how they did it. I, I mean, obviously, you've approached this as a sort of historian of, of, of professional ethics, as well as a commentator on, on current practice. And, you know, I've been reading through in preparation for this episode, I've been reading through your blogs. Um, and certainly the impression I get is that you you are commenting on a on a world which seems to be well, well, very different from some previous era. Is that right? Are you suggesting that that there's been a dis- decline in standards in in uh, standards of ethical of ethics? Well, I, yeah, it's a really good question. I get asked this question a lot, and it, there's there's always a bit of a risk, isn't there? You hit a certain age, and you get a bit nostalgic for the way things were twenty years ago or thirty years ago. And I sort of try to be a bit so I bit I'm a bit wary of the argument that things have got worse, but. Um, there is quite a lot of work on the influence of commercial forces on the profession, particularly solicitors. There is quite a bit of work on, if you like, the forces of globalization. So the Americans versus the Brits, if you like, in the legal services market globally and particularly in in London and the States and so on. So there's that kind of stuff. Um, and I get approached quite a lot by practitioners both from the bar, but particularly from the solicitor's profession, that say things have changed, that those commercial forces have changed the way that lawyers behave. So you've got all of those things, and you've got the dramatic growth in in-house. So in-house legal teams have grown in number and size, and there's been a sort of cultural pressure from them for, on them to behave commercially. And again, in-house lawyers and private practitioners, and the same practice um, uh, pressures on private practitioners, and and 
practitioners tell me, and it makes perfect sense knowing what I know about the research on decision making and so on, they tell me that does impact on the ethical quality of decision making. So all of those things, I think, point in the direction of things having got a bit. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure it's right that there there um, much greater commercial pressures now on people involved in legal practice and all sorts of areas of activity which didn't exist in in the past. But I wonder whether, to an extent, also things are just more visible now i mean it's 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 well known that 40 years ago 50 years ago insider dealing was absolutely standard practice i mean people would exchange information in the clubs in the city and in golf clubs and bars and so on um and lawyers no doubt were party uh, to all of that um i mean they, 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 i'm sure there there would have been all sorts of activities in the past that we would disapprove of if they'd been taken place in in public but just weren't quite so public don't you think there's something in that yeah, I really, I think that is right, Ken. And um, also, of course, standards have changed. So our standards are more exacting in certain, you know, like sexual misconduct, yeah. for instance. The yeah. standards have moved on and have been a, dr- a dramatic improvement in the main. So the, the, yeah, all of those things have changed. It's quite, it's always a bit of a hard question to answer, but I think there is, there is reason to think it's more of a problem or it's recognised as more of a problem now than it was. If you look at, uh, as, I, as I did, having not looked at it for ages, um, the Bar Standards Code of Conduct, and you go through the list of requirements, in other words, what a barrister is supposed to, uh, how, how a barrister is supposed to behave independently, ethically, honestly, one goes through the list, there are about eight or nine key points that, that, that identify your duty as a barrister. I mean, I, I, I don't know, but I'm assuming you're not suggesting that any of those are wrong or need to be changed so it's not a question is it of the code themselves or the regulatory framework uh, is wrong are are you commenting on the fact that for the reasons you've just given behavior has changed and the regulators are not uh, uh, picking it up they're not punishing it they're not identifying it as a breach of the code yeah in, in the main i mean i think there are things that could be done to improve the code the code is is a bit of a mess in many ways um the uh but th- those kinds of points aside in the main i would say it's about practitioners recognizing when they come close to or breach the rules and stopping themselves and the regulators being more vigorous in sometimes being more vigorous in enforcing um it's those kinds of areas that i think uh uh, are probably important. So sla- slaps is something that I know you, you've both been very interested in. You look at what the SRA have done in slaps, to go go back to the solicitors for a minute, actually what the SRA have done largely is just re-emphasize existing rules and existing guidance, but with particular attention on slaps. And that, that sort of thing seems quite sensible to me. I mean, actually the, S- the SRA conducted, as we've mentioned before, quite a, an investigation into slaps, didn't it? It called for files from firms who were involved in 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 uh, reputation and defamation work and they conducted quite an analysis and, and failed to come up with examples didn't they they didn't come up with very much by way of example yeah. but i think and isn't that isn't that but isn't that isn't that quite telling i mean there's always a danger isn't there when you have issues like slaps that it becomes the kind of you know dangerous dogs act of the of the period and everyone gets terribly excited about it and everyone thinks it's a terrible problem until the the press and everyone's attention moves on to the next terrible problem i mean how how, how serious is that issue well I, I, we don't know um we had a we had an example re- recently of a case which looks like a slap we did Charlotte, we did yeah um i listened to your podcast with hugh tomlinson and i think you said out of six four of them weren't slaps which meant that two might well have been slaps that's a third so that's quite a high proportion the um the, the SRA thematic review, I think, is early work, and I don't think they looked at a wide enough range of firms, from what I understand. So I wouldn't put a great deal of work weight on the thematic review. They're, they're due to have a second look, so we'll see where that goes. And they've got these cases working through their enforcement mechanisms, 50 or so. So that, we're early days on that. But I, I, I agree we shouldn't be over overly... Um, taken by the idea and, and slaps i think is actually largely not always but largely a function of structural problems with litigation rather than the behavior of lawyers in the main although sometimes the behavior of lawyers are the well yeah but you say that but actually i mean in your blogs and, and and other commentators would not 
suggest that that's it, the case. I, I think a lot of it is quite personal suggesting that lawyers are behaving in a quasi-criminal way uh, and certainly in a way which is in breach of their um, the code of conduct, whether it's the SRA or the bar code of conduct. And so it is quite personal. And as you know, I mean, a number of lawyers have been in individually named and identified with the protection of parliamentary privilege. And it is, you know, I think before you should be going down that road, you should be capable of identifying what it is that's wrong about um, what they're doing. I mean, either it's in breach of some code of conduct, some ethical rule, or it's simply acting for somebody within the limits of the law, and it's up to the courts to decide the, the, the issue. And usually acting for someone who, for one reason or at that time, is unpopular amongst the commentariat and politicians, which has been the case with many Russian clients recently. I mean, Hugh Tomlinson has been named in Parliament amongst many others. And Tim and I know Hugh uh, extremely well. And um, I I regard him as someone of uh, of very strong principle and an admirable character. So, I mean, I I can only speak for the cases that I've written about. uh, um, But where I do start to talk about individuals, I'm very careful about going through the nature of the concerns and why there might be a concern and what the evidence is and where the gaps in that are. And and so um, I, I don't think it's fair to say that people are being singled out in those circumstances they they usually the cases i write about usually where judges have and judges don't always get this right of course but where judges have said well x y and z has happened and um mr so-and-so has appears to have done uh, uh, y so um that's what i do um and uh, the the difficulty is uh, the the uh, so i don't think these are these are cases that are raised lightly Certainly, certainly by me. But Richard, you're an academic, and you, you're 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 bound to have different standards and a yes, different sure, approach yeah. to politicians and newspaper columnists. I mean, I think I, I think I think what what this comes down to really is the extent, or, or part of it, comes down to this question of the extent to which lawyers are expected to judge their clients before taking on their cases. Now, traditionally, barristers have have had the view that. You shouldn't do that, that, you know, we have a cab rank rule. You should never turn down a client because you disapprove of what he or she's done yeah. or you disagree with yeah, yeah. his or hers politics or for that yeah, yeah. sort of reason. I mean, I obviously approach this as a criminal lawyer. And if I mean, if it, I think it's pretty obvious that if criminal lawyers started to judge their clients, if I judge my clients, I wouldn't have had many clients over the last 50 years, frankly. I'm a, I'm a criminal defence barrister. So why is it any different for a civil practitioner, isn't isn't it a slippery slope? Once we start to judge our clients and say, "I'm not taking your case because I don't like you, or I don't like what you're alleged to have done, or I don't like your political beliefs," where does it end? I mean, it seems to me that's a that's a catastrophic road for us to go down. Yeah, and, and before you, sorry, Richard, sorry, before you, I'm sorry, we're we ganging up on yeah, you. That's here. right. But but let let me just quote you from your blog, March the twenty fourth this year. Lights out at the rank. What you, what you say is this, a gauntlet is being tossed down to the bar and it's on an issue that has been making the wider profession nervous for some time. The rights of evil swine to have access to justice, just like you and me. And you say, okay, I'm kidding, kind of, sort of. And then you go on to say that um, you talk about the cab rank rule acts not to guarantee the rule of law and access to a barrister of one's choice for all, but as a guarantee for one group. It is quite literally one rule for the rich. Legal aid lawyers, you are the honourable exception. And any lawyer desirous and capable of competing for an oligarch's cash has the perfect cover for it in the cab rank rule. I mean, that blog is a full-on attack on the cab rank rule as... As drafted currently... As far as I'm concerned, as a criminal lawyer, I mean, evil swine allegedly, they do have the right of access to the justice. Do you don't do you you don't think they should have access to justice? <laughs> it was pretty tongue in cheek remark at the uh, the beginning of the blog, uh, Tim. The um, uh, so I think criminal pe- people who face criminal proceedings do have such a right. I think there's more of a question actually about people with civil cases or with potential civil cases. Um, I think the point about the cab rank rule, and it's not a full-on attack on the cab rank rule, actually. It's a, it's a big question mark over the cab rank rule 
as currently drafted is how it's written if you follow it through right to the end well no i've read it all I, it's yeah. I, i'm afraid yeah. i do think it is a pretty full-on attack i well i saw i sort of think the bar's not always that used to being taken on on the cab rank rule at all which is partly why why the react partly why the reaction to um, Paul Poseland and Co has been so strong. Um, I think the I think the the my basic argument in a way about it is sort of a political one, which is that most other countries do fine without the cab rank rule. Doesn't really make a difference to access to justice. Uh, evil swine get representation anyway for a whole bunch of reasons. as, as they should. Yeah, yeah. Evil swine okay. have to yeah. have, a, have have to have access to justice, don't they? We can have to agree about that in criminal cases, yeah. The uh, the uh, well, no, in all cases, the, well, but the, the, it's the, the cab rag rule just for, for a certain group of barristers who don't have anything to do really with access to justice in the in the more normal sense of the word. Use it just by their but, but hang on, Richard, is it is it up to the is it up to the professor of ethics at Exeter University to decide who is evil swine? No, well, I'm not deciding. I mean, it's up it's up to the court to decide. And I say very clearly, if you, if you have if you set out your stall in the way of Dinah Rose did in the um, I forget the name of the case now, but it's mentioned in the blog. The, Cay- the Cayman Islands gay marriage case. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm I'm very comfortable with with that kind of approach. And if your practice is set up on that basis, and then I'm very comfortable with that kind of approach. And I would applaud it. And I would applaud Ken and you for the kind of work that you do. I have no problem with it at all but what i do have a bit more of a difficulty with is the kind of constant trotting out of the cab rank rule as some prophylactic against people's choices about the kind of practices that they run i i I think you should be open to criticism and you should be defending those choices on the on the proper basis rather than purely on the basis of a rule which is quite often honored in the breach not always you see i think i i think that's precisely the the risk that we have to start justifying why we're taking political cases and that encourages us not to take cases which are going to be um, unpopular. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Other countries have done well without the cab rank rule, but I would say um, without being jingoistic about it, and I think the, the system of justice here is probably better than it is in the United States. It's probably better than it is in France and Germany. And part of that is because lawyers here have been insulated against being associated with the sins of their clients in a way that they're not in the United States and they're not, by and large, uh, in other European countries. I think that's a problem for them. And I think it's a, a, a serious constitutional protection for us and for people accused of crime and for people involved in litigation that their lawyers aren't associated with what they're alleged to have done. Because as soon as we start to make that association, which is made in all authoritarian states, uh, I think we, we weaken the rule of law. I, I, the cab rank rule is not stopping that association being made, Ken. Well, it'd be made a lot more if I, if I, if if, if someone could say Maybe. to me. I mean, when I when I when let me do, when, when it was announced that I was going to be the next DPP in two thousand and three, some people, yeah. including senior conservative spokespeople, said that I wasn't fit to be DPP because I'd represented terrorists. Now, yeah. if 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 the fact had been that I had deliberately selected terrorists to represent because I wanted to represent them in the absence of a cab rank rule, that might have been a legitimate criticism. But the lab, the cab rank rule protected me from that sort of authoritarian and illiberal criticism because I was conducting myself in accordance with the professional standards of the bar. And that's a protection for all of us, isn't it? Well, I mean, uh, there, there is. I mean, I think there is some value in it. Okay, and that's one of the reasons why Tim doesn't accept the point. But why I do say that the cab rank rule as drafted in the blog, right? The uh, because I think that the, the, there is a problem with the way it's drafted, and there's a problem with the way it operates. And I think there should be a you know a full and, and proper debate about it. Uh, and the and I uh, to be honest, I think everybody else apart from the bar gets pretty sick of the bar harping on about how marvelous the cab rank rule is when they see it honoured in the breach. I mean, they do. Like it or not, they do. They kind of go, oh, they're going again. I agree. Richard, is, uh, is is this the distinction? What you say about the fact that it's honoured more in the breach than the observance, which I think is absolutely true, and no barrister, I suspect, would, would disagree with you, that in practice the rule is is breached all the time. Barristers refuse to do cases all the time because for for a, a wide variety of reasons. 
and so to that extent you could say that the rule is um, not enforced and is in one sense irrelevant but that's not really the point what's more important and what's a different point is that your attack on it is mixed up with this identification of a barrister or any lawyer choosing to act for a client with agreeing with with what they're accused of or effectively acting inappropriately unethically in taking on the case at all and and the point that ken has just made about the attack on him which is outrageous when he as if to say he was unfit to be the dpp because he had chosen to act for terrorist clients in the past i mean that's the point isn't it about the role well so i would say that my 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 criticisms of the rule do not justify the kinds of attack that are made on Ken, although people might use some of the arguments to justify those attacks. You could say I should take some responsibility for that. I don't know. But but my my real interest is and as I guess is actually not so much on who lawyers choose as their clients, but what they then do for those clients. And that's what I've tended to concentrate on. And I think that's where the real meat is. In, in a way I sort of regret never raising the cab rank rule. I knew I'd get stuck in these kind of endless debates if I did. <laughs> I've resisted for years. And um, the, uh, 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 but I kind of gave in one Friday afternoon. But I do, I, I think the critical thing is sometimes lawyers go too far and it's those cases that I'm really interested in and, and they ruin their careers sometimes in, in, uh, as a result as well. So it's that kind of problem that I think is most interesting. Well, let's let's move to that because I I agree with you. I think you know people will agree or disagree about the cab rank rule. But but what you what you spend most of your time analysing, and I and I, I do encourage people to read your blog because I think it's very interesting. What you spend most of your time analysing is situations in which you think lawyers who have no doubt quite appropriately taken on cases then run with them in a way that they shouldn't be, and in a way that's unethical. And 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 you spend a lot of time analysing why your why you're categorizing that conduct as unethical and one of the cases you've looked at very closely and every all of our listeners will be very familiar with it is the post office scandal which has been i think correctly described as probably the worst miscarriage of justice in 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 certainly in post-war british history i mean in in terms of its scale in terms of its impact on such decent people i mean everyone everyone loved a postmaster and a postmistress they were kind of pillars of local society and these were the people these really honourable people who were, were were devastated by this miscarriage of justice, which was avoidable, which in some cases was deliberate in the sense that once the post office must have begun to realise what was happening, instead of correcting the position, they doubled down. And you're critical of some of the lawyers who were uh, I- involved in some of those decisions on the part of the post office not because they decided to represent the post office but because of the advice they gave and the actions they took is that is, is my analysis of that right yes that, that's that's exactly right i mean I, i'm critical of what we know so far i suppose i should say so things may change we're going to hear more evidence over the coming months the inquiry is just about to start looking at the lawyering sort of phases of the scandal um, but on what we know so far and what what has been held so far by the court of appeal and mr justice fraser and so on um, I think there are a large number of concerns across um, uh, different levels of practice, private practice, in-house, bar, solicitors. There's a lot going on, um, which is of great deal con- of concern to, to me. But isn't, isn't that an important point? Isn't it far too soon to judge the role of um, the, the people that you've named in your blog? I mean, you've named um, Brian Altman, KC... Yes. Yep. You've brought in by the post office. You've named Lord Newberger, David Newberger, yep. former president of the Supreme Court. Yep. Uh, Tony Hooper, Lord, former Lord Justice Hooper, yep. who in different areas were brought in after the scandal, nothing to do with the cause of this miscarriage of justice, but they were then instructed or retained to advise the post office in the wake of the allegations of um, miscarriage. And instead of waiting for the outcome of the inquiry, which is currently underway, being conducted by a retired High Court judge, uh, Wynne Williams, Sir Wynne Williams, you have questioned 
the role of these other lawyers. Is that is that fair? Is that right? I think it's absolutely right. I think it's really important that people do that. Uh, the um, I think the inquiry would not perhaps have lifted legal professional privilege in the way it did if um, we hadn't begun to ask those questions. Um, I think the important point is it is questions. There are not final judgments being made here about those people that are involved. I would quibble with, not quibble, I would disagree with your view that they, they, some of the people that you mentioned in that list were simply brought in at the end. Some of them were brought in at the end and have quite minor roles. So um, Tony Hooper and Lord Newberger in some ways would be in that camp. Um, but some of them were brought in in 2013 and are part of a really difficult period in the story where there are lots of questions to be asked and where in counsel to the inquiry are clearly going to be asking those kinds of questions. So I think it's perfectly proper for me to, and important for me to raise that. And I think if I hadn't, the profession wouldn't be taking the interest that it is and wouldn't be starting to think about the lessons to be learned from those kinds of problems, however they work out over the course of the inquiry. I mean, I agree with you about that. I don't think that academic commentators in particular can be can be told that they need to wait until the end of a process before they start commenting. And I don't have a problem with that. Can I just can I just raise um, one issue which you have written about in your blog and which I think is very interesting? And it's it's partly tied up with the idea of what judges should be allowed to do once they've retired. Should they be allowed to return to practice? Should they be giving advice? Should they get involved in litigation? Should they conduct advocacy? And you quote... Um, Jason Beer, who's counsel to the inquiry, uh, Jason Beer KC, who who I think you you may have been at law school with or know in some way. Uh, I don't really know him. No, he was he was the year below me in law school. Okay, okay, okay. But but he, anyway, he's obviously he's obviously a highly highly credible um, barrister and a good person to be doing this. Uh, but he but he talked about senior lawyers being used as comfort blankets for the board, and he, you write that he's explicitly talking about Brian Altman KC. Um, but you think that he also had in mind Lord Neuberger, Lord Grabener, Jonathan Swift, QC, as he then was. Um, and, and the idea, I think, is that um, there's something a bit worrying about very senior lawyers being allowed, allowing themselves to be used to give advice in a situation when it's not just their advice that's going to be important to the receiver of the advice, in this case, the post office board, but their status. So in other words, their status represents a thing in itself a value and somehow they shouldn't be um shouldn't be putting that up for for sale i mean i i i i, I personally take some issue with that because i'm quite sure that some of the people who instruct yeah. me instruct me yeah, because yeah. i'm a former dpp and they want my name they want my name at the end of a piece of advice so they can wave it around and say this is what a former dpp says i've never thought that was wrong i think i i always thought it'd be wrong if i signed a piece of advice that i didn't agree with but so long as i'm giving the advice in good faith so long as lord neuberg is giving the advice in good faith so long so long as lord graben is being giving advice in good faith they can't be criticized for being people of status they can't be told that because they're people of status they shouldn't be getting involved in this kind of work surely no i think that's right up to a point i think the case of lord neuberg is different okay we can come back to him in a sec if you'll if you like uh, i certainly sure. happy to um the um the, I think, but I think though I would have thought though, Ken, and tell me if I'm wrong, that you would be sometimes be a bit more cautious than you would have been if you hadn't been DPP about being asked to do certain jobs because you will have a sense that your history is part of the thing that's being. I I I, I have I've sometimes declined to advise because I've thought the only reason they want this advice is so that they can go around and say this is what a former DPP said, and sometimes I've declined for that reason because I don't want to be used in that way but I, I I think it's a bit a bit off to second guess anything that someone like a, a former president of the Supreme Court does on the basis that he's a former president of the Supreme Court he's entitled to to to, to, to do these things within parameters surely and and that's people have always accepted that it's not it's not there's nothing new in this well, they haven't always accepted that. I think that's the first point. There was a convention that judges did not do that kind of work. And um, um, Ben Yong and Patrick O'Brien have done a research study recently which suggests that judges 
aren't quite sure what's happened to that convention or think that it's gone. And we know that Lord Newberger thinks it's gone because he told me when he kindly responded to my questions when I was writing about it. Um, so I don't think it's always been the case. Uh, I think his is a special case. Um, I, I, if I could try and put it like this without getting too much into the weeds, he was called in at the last minute to advise on a recusal application in a massive trial, which he would really struggle to get other than a the slimmest view of from his instructions, which was partly about claimants raising cases who were already agitating about being uh, being the victims of miscarriages of justice. This is the post office litigation. Yeah, yeah, where, where and where the post office we now know knew that a principal witness may have misled the Crown Court. And we now know the post office or Fujitsu were relying on that person to provide evidence in the post office um, case sort of by proxy. And we know also the central, there were two central defences, one of which was that the post office said Horizon could, was not um, subject to secret remote access. The engineers couldn't alter the system remotely from Bracknell. Jonathan Swift had told them that they shouldn't be saying they couldn't do that in 2015 and in 2017 until part of the way through 2019, they continue to say that. So there's all these things going on and Lord Newberg was sort of called into that maelstrom. Now, he, we don't know what he was aware of. That. Well, hang on a sec, Richard. Uh, at the risk of being a, a sort of a prig here, I mean, you're saying we know this, we know that. We know what we know from public judgments in the post office litigation, the Court of Appeal yeah. Criminal Division. We know from Mr. Justice Fraser's judgments. We know from Lord Justice Coulson's dismissal of the uh, attempt to recuse Fraser and so on. So we, 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 we know that. What we don't know, what you don't know, and what the inquiry is yet to resolve is what Lord Newberger knew. You say his instructions. We don't know what is. Have you seen his instructions? No, I, that's the point I was making. We don't be, but these are the sorts of things that should have been in his instructions, right? And there will be some of those things which should have set off alarm bells, in my view. Well, you, but you haven't seen his instructions. No, no, haven't. Absolutely right. And, 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 and the point, the point is this: um, whether it's a criminal case or a civil case, a lawyer may be lied to by his client. None of us knows when we're instructed to do a case whether our client is a truthful person. You can't possibly know that. All you can know when you receive a set of instructions is what your client is telling you. You then take those on board. You then advise on the law and so on. I mean, I just feel that a lot of the commentary that you and others have made about this aspect of the case, particularly Lord Newberger, um, is, is just premature. I mean, it's yet... It is, it is being inquired into by the inquiry, but we can't possibly know if it's unethical. Well, well so, so I, I agree with that. And I've actually been very careful about what I've said about Lord Newberg. And what I've mainly said is this convention just seemed to evaporate what's going on. That's no way to uh, manage a, the modern judiciary, right? You need to have some kind of proper approach around governing those kinds of problems. And if you look at... Um, Patrick and Ben's research. There's lots of examples from other jurisdictions as well. So it's not a problem which is confined to here. But I, what I was trying to convey there when I was trying to go through the things that we know about the case is that it should have been, probably would have been apparent to Lord Newberg that this was a sort of risky case. He was being asked to advise on the recusal of a high court judge. And there had been a convention against judges advising on litigation. Okay. He knew all those things and he still did it. Now, he thought that was fine. I think that's sort of, but there is a question about that and we will know how big that question is when we hear more about the instructions. And that's where I would kind of leave the point really about him. Well, it's 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 fair to say that Lord Justice Coulson, when when the when Mr. Justice Fraser declined to recuse himself on appeal, um, was expressed himself in pretty strong terms about the recusal application. Indeed, he he said in effect that it, it, it in effect that it should never have been made because there was no basis for it. But one of the things that rather troubled me, and I can't remember, Richard, whether this was in your blog or or in a blog that I followed through a link to your blog, but there was a suggestion either in yours or someone else's blog that one of the things that Lord New New Newberger should have factored in when he was deciding whether or not to advise uh, on a recusal in this case was the the the, the, the misbehaviour 
of the post office and the, the, the general knowledge out there the, the, that the post office had behaved atrociously throughout this process. And this, this takes us back to the extent to which lawyers should be judging their clients. I, I don't think that'd be a proper basis for a lawyer to decide whether or not uh, to advise on the question of recusal, which is after all about the bias of the judge in the trial, not about the the disgraceful conduct alleged against one of the parties. And it, I mean, do, 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 you, do you think that that's something that, that Lord Newberger should have taken into account, the disgraceful behaviour of the post office when he was deciding whether or not he'd advise on recusal of the judge? Well, I, I, I don't doesn't sound like something that I said, but let's assume for a minute I did say something like that. I, I mean, I think that that would be a point for Lord Newberger as a former president of the Supreme Court rather than Lord Newberger as a, what is he now? What is he now, right? He's not a barrister. He's not regulated as a barrister. He, what, what rules govern him? Actually, no rules govern him right now, um, other than, you know, general law and so on and so forth. So the, um, th there's, that, there's that question. But so I, the, the question about his, if you like, getting involved in a highly risky case, which is controversial, which relates to the administration of justice, which impacts on a high court judge. And if they'd succeeded, would have quite possibly muffled the miscarriage of justice, which we're now learning about. Now, Lord Newberg wouldn't have known about that, but that's, that would, that's what the outcome would have been. I mean, the reality is that the sequences that nobody will know and did know at the time of the application before Mr Justice Fraser to recuse himself, who had advised. I think what I, from your description, my understanding of it, I mean, the more uh, sort of dubious aspect of it was Lord, Lord Grabener's uh, comment in court. The interorum The, the interorum threat, yeah. i.e. Yeah, yeah. somebody very senior, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, has said you should recuse yourself. Now, that seems to me totally improper. But, I mean, that's not Lord Newberger's fault. He probably said it because he was under pressure from Mr Justice Fraser. And if you've seen the photo online of Mr <laughs> Justice Fraser as a, as a triathlete, if you've, seen the same photo, if you've seen the same photo of me, I think the terror might have been going in the opposite direction. Yeah. I, and I think he may have trained as a Marine, I'm not sure. Let's put it this way. He, he, he looks like a very hard man. The, uh, I think he looks like a sweetheart. <laughs> the, um, so um, you know, I'm, my guess is you're, you're right about that, Ken. But the, the, actually, I'm not so worried about that. I sort of, I sort of think there's a bit of show going on there. I, I don't believe Fraser was was felt threatened, um, but other people say disagree with me about that. Senior practitioners and sometimes judges disagree with me about that. Um, I'm a bit surprised by that. I would have thought that was water off a duck, duck's back if I was a high. No, I, I, I would never do something like that. I would never do that kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. No. You know, you, I've got something in the back pocket. No, I think I think that's okay. wrong. Okay, okay, that's, that's good. Well, that's uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think you should have done it. I agree with that. But I, I'm actually a bit more concerned about the influence on the board than the attempt to influence the court. But I agree, I agree. The interim stuff looks worse. Mm. I mean, isn't yeah? I mean, your basic point, we, and we have to bring this conversation to an end. Um, fascinating though it is, um, your basic point here, and maybe it's a subject for another discussion, is uh, there needs to be clarity about what retired judges can do, how they should be regulated, what are the limits on what they can do, because we are in a world in which quite a lot of judges for all sorts of reasons, but a lot of it to do with the fact it's not a particularly attractive job any longer for many people. A lot of people yeah. retiring yeah. early and want to carry on in legal practice in some form or another. And then the question is, how, could should they, can they, and on what basis can they? Yeah, absolutely. I, the, and I, I basically, I would say to your reader, reader yeah, your listeners, <laughs> sorry, go and read Ben and Patrick's yeah. report. It's really interesting. I, I'm certainly not in the camp which says judges shouldn't be able to do anything. I think Ben and Patrick make some really sensible suggestions as to the way forward, which is that if judges go back, they should um, go back as barristers or solicitors and be properly regulated. And the regulators should think about what restrictions there ought to be, if any, on what they can and can't do. Um, I was very, I, the seminar was brilliant. I was very moved by the contribution of mainly circuit judges, circuit court judges um, and ex-circuit court judges who were saying, you know, actually some, some judges feel absolutely stuck in the job and need to have roots back to practice. Otherwise it will destroy their lives. And that was a very moving and powerful point, which I entirely take to heart. Well, I think the increasing difficulties that uh, we're having in recruiting 
judges will, will, will force some movement here because I think one of the, the things that could be most effective in persuading people to spend some years on the bench, talented people some years on the bench, is the idea that they can come back into into practice if they want to. In other jurisdictions, that's managed without difficulty and I don't see why it shouldn't be here. And I, and I also agree with you, Richard, I think the key issue here is that if judges do work um, after the bench there needs to be regulation they need to be subject to the same rules and regulations including ethical regulations as everybody else at the moment it does seem to be a bit of a bit of a lacuna yeah and um, i i i it, there are plenty of sensible ways forward i but the, the regulators need to and the, the judiciary and the bar need to take up the cudgels and think about it properly well richard um that may be a subject for another episode when we invite you back uh, i'm sorry we haven't had time to address the ethics of uh, uh supreme court justices alito and clarence thomas <laughs> that would that, that that Tim that would be a very short conversation. They've behaved like a couple of jerks, um, and 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 their 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 behaviour is clearly unethical. It's an absolute disgrace. And 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 John Roberts John Roberts needs to do something about it. And at the moment, he's too cowardly to. Uh, yeah, I don't suppose you disagree with that, Richard. No, I can't say I followed it very closely, but yeah, they. Well, I mean, it's just it's a it's a clown fest, isn't it? It's amazing over there. It's really well, I think jerk jerk is under uh, understates. It is. I think. Uh, yeah. uh, Criminal, criminal is maybe um, more appropriate. Anyway, no doubt we better consult the libel lawyers about that. Richard, um, it's been great. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a really interesting discussion. Thanks, Jens. You take care of yourself. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for thanks for being with us. You've been listening to Double Jeopardy, the law and politics podcast with Tim Owen and me, Ken McDonald. Uh, we hope very much you've enjoyed this conversation. Please subscribe, uh, share the link with your friends and do check out our back catalogue where you'll find many, many more interesting conversations with a very diverse group of guests. We um, hope to be back with you. We'll be back with you uh, in a week or so. Um, in the meantime, thanks for joining us. Our editor is uh, Billy Lawrence and our social media advisor is Jess Jones. 